This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Good morning. Well, all eyes are on Trump and Clinton this week, so on Talking Point, we thought it might be time to look at the man leaving office in a short while. Barack Obama is a great man for his speech, but will becoming the first black man elected president turn out to be his greatest achievement? Barack Obama is our talking point this morning. And in studio, Ben Tonra is a man I'm about to title shame. He is the Jean Monnet Professor Ad Personum of European Foreign Security and Defence Policy and Associate Professor of International Relations at the UCD School of Politics and International Relations. Sounds better than it is. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Thank Ben. You. Karen Devine is a lecturer in international National Relations at DCU and Eno Doherty is a columnist for independent newspapers and later in the show we'll be talking to Gina London communications consultant and former CNN anchor um, now I'm going to cheat a little bit because Karen you were on our show last week we were talking about Brexit and I'm pretty sure my last question was what happens if Brexit has to be put to the House of Commons and we all went oh my god that'll just be a disaster so what was your view on the ruling this week I have to ask you yeah so the ruling came out um, in the middle of graduation ceremonies last Thursday and I just got wind of it from a colleague so uh, that was uh, on the 3rd of November so I I had a look at the ruling as best I could uh, last night I got up to about article 100 and kind of lost the will to live (laughs) at that point however um, I found it very interesting because and you know I'm not a British constitutional lawyer but basically the British constitution is termed unwritten so it's basically at domestic and statute law level Um, and what the argument is by those who brought the cases because the uh, Britain the UK acceded to the European Union it conferred some rights and obligations on them as citizens and what they're arguing is is the Crown um, which under the unwritten constitution is allowed to conduct the external relations the international relations of the UK is allowed to make treaties and in fact unmake treaties on behalf of the UK what they're arguing is is because they have these rights under the the EU treaties currently that the Crown doesn't have the right to kind of in what they are arguing is change domestic law to to basically abrogate those rights to take away those rights Um, now I I just kept as I was it was almost like I was grading a student paper because I kept kind of writing in the columns red herring what's this got to do with the point and I think that the the, the, the state secretary who is arguing on behalf of the government his case was under the constitution the Crown is allowed to make international relations and unmake and make treaties. And I hadn't seen anything in the judgment that would counteract that. So I do find it a very, very strange judgment. Um, um, what they're saying now is that it's going to be appealed to the Supreme Court. I think that's scheduled for the 7th of December. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I can't. So do you think the government has a good chance of winning it? I do, because I haven't seen anything in the judgment that says that the Crown cannot conduct international relations and cannot make and unmake treaties can't see it we live in turbulent times of that <laughs> there is no doubt um, Ben I shall start with you then perhaps on uh, Barack Obama and I was reading a bit of Maureen Dowd who is a bitingly um, harsh critic of Barack Obama and she was making a point that you know he came to power on this a platform of uniting the country. Mm -hmm. There are no red states and blue states. There's no liberal American, conservative America. It's the United States of America. And yet, look 
at it now, more divided than ever. Is there anything he could have done to stop that? Did he make it worse? Hand on heart, I don't think he could have done anything. Um, He came in on this wave, as you say, of idealism and hope for change and all the rest of it. Um, And he met a Republican Party, and particularly in the aftermath of the 2008 collapse, a Tea Party element of the Republican Party, which was not for turning, which was not for compromise. Um, Now, it was exacerbated, and and Ian may may reflect on this, uh, it was exacerbated by the fact that as a politician, he's not that brilliant. He's a bit prickly. He's a bit cold. He's a bit aloof. He doesn't like doing schmoozing. He doesn't like the congressional cloakrooms and all the rest of it. So there might have been room for movement at the margins, but frankly, Considering the hand he was dealt, I think not. And I think it's illustrated by the fact, in terms of part of his legacy, is going to be Hillary. Um, And I think that's significant because he overlooked his own vice president, Joe Biden. He overlooked, in a sense, his own doppelganger, you know, the the idealistic outsider in Bernie Sanders. And he, he plumped for the guerrilla warfare. He plumped for Hillary Clinton, tried, tested forged in the in the fires of the Clinton administrations, um, and he looked for a street fighter to protect his legacy. And he clearly judges that the U.S. political system is not for hope and change. Um, you know, Daugherty, yeah, Maureen Dowd said, in the end, Obama didn't overthrow the Clinton machine. He enabled it. What do you think of that? Well, you can see that they're all part on the same line of the same continuum that's going down. But it's interesting what you were saying there about Joe Biden. Even I think, you know, most of America, certainly most Democrats in America, wish that it was Joe Biden standing. But I mean, with Bo Biden dying and things like that. I mean, it, there was a very good interview with Biden on uh, the circus on Monday night, actually, and he said that. I mean, you could see that he really, really regrets not running, but he came up with a very interesting line. He said, it really, really hurt not doing it, but even as I said no, I knew it was the right thing to do, because he said, you can't, you can see how incredibly toxic this campaign is, so you can't be doing that at a time when, you know, the man's son was dying, you mm-hmm. know, so it's it just seems like the universe had conspired to ensure we were going to get the worst to candidates, probably of our lifetime. You know, we I think the, coin, the, the, the horrible fiendish coincidence is probably the two worst candidates we will probably ever see both happen to be running in the same election. But could Obama have done anything about that faced with the Congress that he had and the Tea Party and the opposition politics he was met with? Could he have done more? Well, you can't blame the shutdown entirely on either side. That was the thing, you know, but, but again, you're right. I mean, he's, we have this image of him being sort of the consummate politician because he has a degree of superficial charm. And even like, I mean, I have to say, like when he was over here a couple of years ago, even though I wouldn't be a big fan, I mean, I just had to go, wow, he gives great speech. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? That's, that's something like, but even then, even that sort of little uh, sheen has sort of really come off in the last couple of years. Basically, for the last two years, he might as well have been wearing a hat saying, gone fishing. You know, I mean, we're seeing a time now where lots of people are being laid off and things like that. If somebody come and offered Obama a deal two years ago, I think he would have taken it. If he'd been, if he'd been offered a severance package, I actually do think he would have taken it because he looks like a man who really realised that the powers of his office are pretty more limited than he thought they were. And he doesn't look like he's been enjoying it. I know that sounds like a very simplistic thing, but you can see that he's become increasingly frustrated and you can see that visible frustration coming across from him. Um, so Karen Devine, you know, faced with the bipartisan system in the US, what's your answer to that question? Was there more that he could have done? He really did seem to disdain the muckiness of politics. Was that good enough given what he had promised? I would have a certain sympathy with Barack Obama in the situation he was in, because if you look at data on polarization of candidates who were running for Congress, whether in the Senate or the House of Representatives, you can see that they are more right wing and more left wing than they were previously. So when you have people like that getting elected to the House, 
essentially nothing happens. And uh, if you look at the levels of what they call filibustering, which is basically kind of talking ad nauseum so that a piece of legislation can't get properly debated and passed. I think there were something over 200 instances, maybe 212, I think, is the figure I have in my head, instances of that during his tenure as president. Um, and again, if you if you look at the fact that many of those on the far right and Ben mentioned the Tea Party, and I think that was a major factor as well that kept the Republicans basically very conservative on the right because they were afraid of that threat. I, and, and, you know, you have to understand the mentality of individuals who are effectively right wing authoritarian. Um, they don't like um, racial minorities. Um, uh, but, 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 Ian, what can I right just wing libertarians? Can I just say, though, you know, the idea of a black man being in the White House was enough to basically dig the heels in of so many on the right. And do you think that was racism, partly what he was facing? It wasn't just normal bipartisan politics, it was actual racism. I mean, it'll be, I would say, it'll be interesting to see, and I do think Hillary will win on Tuesday, but it'll be interesting to see if the similar things happen under Hillary. Because if similar things don't happen under Hillary, then I would have to conclude it probably was to do with racism. Yes. Now, obviously, she suffers a different type of racism in that she's a woman. Mm. Um, and I don't know, you know, if being um, a half black man or or a white female, I don't know which is worse, really, for, for the right wing <laughs> authoritarians in America. But... Um, I think that I don't think Barack Obama could have done an awful lot. I think that racism did play a part in the extreme right wing is what I'm saying. And the Republicans had to look after that faction. Ian? I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm curious actually about the term sort of right wing authoritarian because the whole point of the Tea Party is that they don't want, you know, it's don't step on me. Um, they want smaller government. They want no, they, they basically want effectively zero government if they possibly can. And if anything, I mean, the, the only authoritarian impulses we're seeing coming out of America at the moment are coming from the left. As usual, I mean, and for all we, you know, we can give out about the Tea Party. I mean, they they had some nutters. There's no doubt about that. And I mean, certainly, um, some of their loudest spokespeople were the were some of the most unpleasant people you'd ever see. But an awful lot, of, and I've spoken to a lot of people involved in the Tea Party, and they just thought the American government had become too big that they weren't being listened to, and they basically they got into the thing of a very belligerent sort of anti-government. There's 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 more hatred towards the the, the government in America now probably than there has been since the Oklahoma bombing. Yeah, I which agree finished with that. The, which finished the militia movement. But I mean, the things, if you look at I mean, one of the legacies of Obama, is things like, and this is the really toxic thing. When I mean, Black Lives Matter, for example, I mean, this is when you see this and you see the stupidity that's going on in American campuses now, where basically you have minorities calling for their own racial segregation. That all comes back from a present where I would have voted, and I know an awful lot of people, a lot of Americans who did, who, white Americans who were happy and proud to vote for Obama the first time around. That America needed the change. I mean, certainly, I mean, I would have said even as somebody who probably would have had more time for Bush America needed change I don't think it's a good idea for a party to be in for more than two election cycles anyway mm. I think it's always good to, to re- yeah. move things up same here but as much as as much as he came in on this wave of optimism and a friend of mine, a friend of mine was actually in New York on the night of the election he said it must have been what it was, it was like on the day of VE Day in New York he said there was just this absolute genuine spontaneous outpouring of sheer joy and excitement and real optimism real hope and change and that's gone. It's just turned so sour. OK, well, Ben, let's do a checklist then. Let's go through the actual policies. And um, foreign policy is obviously a big one, but we'll just start with the healthcare for mm-hmm. the moment because that was something that was to <coughs> really try and improve the lives of ordinary Americans, so many of whom had no private health insurance and a uh, medical disaster quickly became a financial one. 
what's your rating of what he has achieved on that? Seven out of ten. Um, he's got over 30 million Americans now covered with health care. He spent every nickel and dime of his political capital in that first Congress getting health care through, where people, when people like his chief of staff were advising him to hold back and, and save the ammunition. He Was went, that Ram Emanuel? Yeah, he, yeah. Went, he went hell for leather for health care. He got health care in a very, very tortuous, very messy, very ugly, awful design, largely because he couldn't get the kinds of votes he needed on the Republican side. Um, I think there's a lot there to be fixed. And even Bill Clinton was talking about, you know, the, the, the nature of the fix that was needed. Um, but I think that has got to rank it up, up there, along with the fact, and this is slightly counter to Ian's point, um, that the U.S. has enjoyed nearly 70 months now of uninterrupted private sector employment gains um, and an employment rate under 5%. I mean, he brought the U.S. out of the trough. And can you Depression. say that? Can you say he brought the yes, U.S. Yes, you can, because trough. in terms of, you know, 800 billion dollars of infra- infrastructure and other support and investment through the through the TARP, through the American Recovery Act, um, and through what he did in terms of re-regulating Wall Street and, and, and the economy in a, in a, for some people, not enough, but he did do that. Um, I think he can lay claim to to a lot of that economic recovery. Absolutely. But on the, on the same yeah. hand, though, labor participation is down to 60% in America, you know, and the rise of households that have nobody actually working in the house is, is on the rise as well. I mean, see, this is the problem is that it's... If, if anything, what we're seeing in America now is a bit like what we're seeing over here, is that the fall is slowing down. And things are sort of, you know, if they're not necessarily improving, they're certainly not getting worse at the radical rate that they had been for the last six years. And But if you look at, I mean, say, if you live in Arizona, your premiums have gone up to nearly $500 a month. And they this were, is for the health insurance. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Right. it's 2%. So, but the thing is, I mean, this is, the, you know, I have a huge degree of sympathy for somebody who lives, I have a huge degree of sympathy for somebody who, say, lives in a border state um, where they see that there is no border anymore and that they feel that they're living in the Wild West and on top of that then that their health premiums have more than doubled. So, I mean, Karen, they're, they're not racist uh, if they have an objection to that. So, so, Karen, can yeah. I just come back yeah. to um, Ian, raise the question of, I don't know what you mean by right-wing authoritarianism and I think it's important just to clarify it. It is an academic term, so apologies for that. But No, I'm aware of it. I just don't what it, it essentially here. means is that it's it's a set of values that an individual has that distinguishes them from people on the left. And it's a worldview. And when you talk to a right wing authoritarian, they will say things like, well, we believe we're the God's chosen people. They will say things like, well, you know, everyone has a fair and equal chance in this society. And if people don't have the wealth that I have, then and don't have the employment I have or the opportunities I have, then that's their own fault. And they ignore the structural inequality qualities that are built into society. So from that point of view, I think Barack Obama realized that that wasn't going to suddenly change overnight. And I think that he was very rational in how he approached his policy goals in that respect. And I would agree with what Ben said about uh, Obamacare, about the health care, the fact that he got nearly 30 million people covered. Now, he would also argue himself that 19 million are not covered. But when we talk about inflation, and Ian is right to say, yes, uh, premiums went up. But the fact is, is that he managed to stop them going up in crazy and amounts. It was a- it was a particular percentage of people whose premiums went up. They got caught between not being able to avail of some subsidies on these exchanges. It's all terribly yeah, plus technical. You had Republican governors and Republican legislatures in some states trying to strangle Obamacare at birth, and they yes. have created markets in their own respective states where this kind of phenomenon has been accelerated. Other states, which bought into extensions of Medicare, bought into other elements of the Obama health care package, their premiums have gone up by two, three, six, and seven percent over the last five years. So, so I, I have. Think people don't yeah. Realize over here is just the resentment that Americans have. That the average American, I'm not talking with the the 
the, the right wing authoritarian yeah. or libertarians. Yeah. The, the, the resentment that the average American has any time that the government comes anywhere near and takes their money. Um, you know, we have much more of a, of a tolerance for those sort of, you know, socialistic kind of principles or whatever. Where we've, we, in Europe, we have a tradition of sort of the social contract where people expect to pay, mm. to pay more taxes and they kind of live, live with it. In America now, you can understand why the genuine fury and baffled um, resentment that more of their money has been taken. And but one of the things that's great about America, sorry, sir, mm. one, of, one of the things that's brilliant about America is the principle that basically the government will let you keep your money to do with what you will. But do you not find that an act of a, a quite a self-destructive um, a philosophy, given that so many Americans then were without health insurance and were being bankrupted if they got sick, that no. it wasn't just and something had to be done. And if there are people who think that way, they're just wrong. And he had to do something. about Yeah, it. but the thing is, nobody wants to get into complete social Darwinism. This is the problem yeah. that any time you can't imagine anything to do with sort of libertarianism or the American ideal. And I, I, again, I disagree. I think I mean, I think America is still the land of opportunity. And I think that, the, you know, people are people in America are right to say that you can lift yourself up from your bootstraps, you know what I mean? And the thing is, you've got two choices. You can look at, you know, anytime somebody uses the word systemic, I always get a bit twitchy, you know, but anytime, you know, you can look at sort of apparent inequalities or you can say that America is still the greatest country on earth where you can still basically go there as a poor person. You can still work your way up. It's become harder. Well, if ben, you, it's if you it's become harder for want, everybody to do that. If you ben want Thomas. twitchy, you know, the metaphor of bootstraps makes yes. me positively vibrate. <laughs> um, and there are such things as structural inequalities, particularly with respect to race. Um, and I would double down, in fact, on what Karen said with respect to racism, um, because the myth of the you know the white working class, the people left behind globalization, voting for the revolutionary character in Trump, I think is bull. Um, I think what you're saying, I, I, think, I think what you're saying is you're seeing a very deep seated racism that was, ex- which 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 exploded with the election of a biracial African American named Barack Hussein Obama with a very cosmopolitan Pacific past, they could not for the life of them reconcile that with what their vision of America was. And you look at the Trump campaign and the visceral racism, anti-Semitism, sexism that has permeated his campaign from the very top, his campaign manager, to the very bottom with his advocates screaming, Jew USA, Jew USA, Jew USA. You tell me that's not racism because that's exactly what it is. And Karen, to go back to it, could Obama have done more to try and soothe those tensions? Or was the fact that he got elected something that actually increased those tensions and heightened it all? It did increase them. It did increase them. Um, I mean, I I have a sort of a personal experience in in that um, I was living in America from 2012 to 2013 on Fulbright and I was living in New York um, and people there I would ask them about politics and the re-election and they were saying well you know folks here think different to folks outside of the city kind of thing and I could understand what they were getting at and then I would travel to the south so I spent time in Texas, in Georgia Alabama and all of those places and it was interesting that um, I I went there with a, a a biracial friend um, and you know we would be walking around areas of, of Georgia and we would see that there is and what she what she saw herself because she lives in Chicago um, she's like Barack Obama she's like a, a biracial sort of cosmopolitan person who's lived in different places in the world and she what she found was that there is informal segregation in the south that is not there um, in outside of the south um, it's not there on the coast it wasn't there in Chicago. And I think that this racism is just part of American society but, but, that reflected 
in the, in the extreme way in in politics in Congress once Barack Obama did, got in. Did he have any opportunities to do anything for um, poor black people? You okay. Know? So that's that's a, that's one point because I spent an awful lot of time in Harlem and there was an Irish tavern up in Harlem that I, I basically uh, drank in with a bunch of Ethiopians. And one of the things I was asking... <laughs> I want your life. <laughs> oh, it was the best year of my life. The Fulbright application system was closed, but people, if you're an artist or writer or a journalist, a student, just apply next year. But so I'm, I'm in Harlem um, and I'm asking, you know, well, what do you think of Barack Obama? And there was one particular individual who I hung out with a few times and he was saying, this man has an identity problem. He has done nothing for black people. I would go to Colombia and listen to seminars and again... um Oh, I think someone's phone is ringing. Is that yours? Do you know what? Will we take a quick break? We have to take one now anyway. We'll switch off the phones and we'll come back and we let Karen make her point about um, what Barack Obama did for black people. Thanks. After this. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Good morning and welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about Barack Obama this morning and in studio, Ben Tonner is a lecturer at UCD School of International uh, Politics and International Relations. Karen Devine is also a lecturer in International Relations, but across the Liffey at DCU. And Dino Doherty is a columnist for independent newspapers. Now, poor Karen is absolutely scarlet because her iPad started uh, beeping at us during her last point. That's okay, but she was (laughs) making a point about, you know, what had Barack Obama done for poor black people in America? Yeah, and again, I was saying I, I was at these talks in Colombia where there was um, a fair few people who were sort of academics and semi-academics who really looked in detail at what he had done in his first four years and they weren't impressed at all. Um, and I looked at what um, presidents can have uh, a power called an executive order. Mm. And normally it's very interesting to look at the executive orders in the last few months before a president leaves office. And I thought to myself, if there was any time that Barack Obama was going to do something in that space for black people. That was his opportune time to do it. And the only one I saw was that he was trying to create educational opportunities, which would fit with his whole idea of trying to fund student loans, not by private financial institutions, but through the state to avoid very high interest rates and discrimination, etc. But again, and I put this to some of the, the people who were there at the talk afterwards. I said, well, what about the executive order for this? And they said, no, it's meaningless. Um, he needs money behind it. He, 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 he needs to change politics fundamentally and he has failed to do so. So I think there was quite a, ver- a very angry minority who probably aren't all that visible in the media in the US who are saying that Barack Obama really did nothing for black people. Uh, Gina London is on the line. She's a communications consultant and former CNN anchor. Good morning, Gina. Hi, good morning to you and good morning to your panellists. And I think what the last speaker just mentioned is actually one of the key components that I've seen in Obama's legacy, and that is that he started with this idea of being a big bridge builder and that he was going to be doing things to help with the hope and bring all these types of economic recovery. And I think there were a lot of statistics that said he did bring more economic expansion in Reagan and through jobs and growth and investing and things like that. But he did, with the executive order mentioned, he did inflame his his opponents in Congress when he said that he was going to act out without them and do all these executive orders and that sort of thing. And so in many ways, I think that she's right. And the other panelists are right, too, and they touched on the point that he said he was going to be this vision of hope, and that's why many people voted for him in the first term. But really, throughout his eight years, he's overseen a lot of the destruction of political idealism about how the future 
is going, and can American politics fundamentally change? What about now we can move on to his foreign policy, because obviously that's um, in some ways, you know, what affects most of us. Um, I suppose the two things are Guantanamo Bay and Syria. If we talk about those, what's your view on his his grand promise to shut down Guantanamo? Um, How do you rate his success on that front? Would that be to me? I think that that's actually been absolutely a a situation in his legacy. That's not what he promised. It was dragged out. It was long. There were still questions going on. There were still a lot of uncertainties about what the legacy that that was. It's a blight on his on his legacy, Guantanamo. I mean, he didn't start it, obviously, but he certainly didn't wrap it up the way he promised to when he was first running for his first term. Now, and what about Syria? So this is where he's hugely criticised for not intervening earlier, especially when Assad used chemical weapons on his own people. Would you be sympathetic with his reluctance to, um, to, to I don't know what the word is, well, to minimise the US's involvement there? I think in that situation, I mean, look, we can all sit here today in armchair quarterback what it's like to be the commander-in-chief when there's a lot of complexities going on and things aren't as simple as we would want it to be. But the way that that is going on and the way that it dragged on and the decisions that are still being made around that, and it's one of those things some would argue more on the the conservative side that we never should have gotten in there in the first place in our imperialism days uh, really need to be scaled back. But the fact is that we are in it now, and we need to make some really strong decisions. But as someone else earlier pointed out on your panel, his legacy of supporting Hillary Clinton is almost going to be seen as, well, what are we going to do then? Because her decisions in many ways helped us get to where we are in Syria as well, and it's devastating. Do you think he should have supported Joe Biden instead of Hillary for the the presidency? Well, I think another panelists already pointed out that Joe Biden didn't have the appetite to it. So it really, well, that wasn't an Obama decision. That was a Joe Biden decision. He did not want to fully commit and run for the presidency because of the, the obligations and the commitments that it was going to take away from his own family situation at that time. So I don't think, actually, we can fairly you know, put Obama say, in that on that one. I didn't really buy that. Now, you this didn't. could be, yeah, my conspiracy theory. I wondered if Obama had got behind him. Would well, you know, look, I, I, I worked with the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee when Joe Biden was an active senator in, in, from Delaware. And, and he has been in politics for so long, I think he simply has done all that he could and wanted to do at this point in his career. And that his family, you know, his, his own family, I think, at this point, really is important to him. Of course, he's committed to the policies and to the politics that he's been a part of for so long. But I don't, I don't think personally that he did have the appetite. I really don't. Hmm. Ben, let's just go back over on some of those. So Guantanamo Bay. Now, so he promised to shut it down. Could he have shut it down or was it just an, a judicial nightmare? Well, physically, he could because the Congress wouldn't let him bring these people back to the US and incarcerate them there. And he couldn't get enough overseas allies to take these people back. And he didn't want to give them back people who posed a real and, and, and visible threat. And I think that what that illustrates is that I think in security and international relations terms, I think the weight of the office really impinges on him. I mean, I think he takes very seriously the idea of protecting Americans overseas and protecting American interests, which has led him down a path on Guantanamo, on the use of drones, for example, and extrajudicial killings, which 
I would have thought that every fiber of his intellectual and moral being would have said, no, this is unacceptable. But because of the nature of the office and what he sees as his responsibilities, he went down pathways that I wouldn't think he is, are of his natural inclination, shall we say. Ian, yeah. was that his point, the moral and intellectual um, weight of the office, that he was maybe too clever and too intellectual and maybe weighed things up from too many sides that maybe led him then to... Um, overcomplicating things. Well, it, it, I think at times a lot of people maybe mistook his sort of a, it seems a lack of interest in certain issues. Some things just seem to really kind of not bother him that much. And but, but the one thing I found about the foreign policy, here's the thing, it's like something like Obamacare, fundamentally that's a, that's, a, that's an internal domestic issue. We can all have our own philosophical issues about socialised insurance or whatever, but that's, on the other hand though, when I guess the foreign policy stuff, this is the stuff that's real. This is the meat and the sandwich. And this is the stuff that affects all of us, right? The situation, the migrant situation we're seeing in Europe at the moment, the debate that we're having about why we haven't taken in more Syrian refugee children, for example, all of those things go back to basically Obama pulling out effectively the Middle East. The two things he wanted, he wanted to get rid of Gitmo. Already now they've actually, they've killed people in the field who have been released from Guantanamo Bay. So they're actually releasing people who are going back to fight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so then you see, as soon as he said the red line, as soon as they said there's a red line, as soon as Assad crosses that, and then I think was it was less than a week. It was a deliberate response by the Assad regime, basically, to give Obama the two fingers. So no, I think it was he, a year. I think no, it was no, a there year. was well, no because there was war, uh, metaphorical as opposed to literal. No, after within a, about within a week, or certainly within a short pace of time, of Obama uh, saying do not cross this red line, or the massive, um, they crossed the red line and nothing happened. And as a result of that, now we can see that Russia is now the preeminent power in the Middle East. Russia is now calling the shots. And I think what it is is that if you look at Obama, regardless of what you might personally think of the man, he seems to garner no respect from other leaders. Right, even down to like when he, you know, when he did the tour of Asia, and he basically apologised on behalf of America so many times and things like that. And even when he went to Cuba, and the, the Cuban leadership humiliated him on the runway. And so you just see a guy who just effectively has looked increasingly ineffectual, increasingly detached, increasingly dislocated from the whole thing, increasingly disillusioned himself with the position that's going on. I think what Ian was saying there about an apology tour is is classic right-wing authoritarian uh, discourse. Stop calling me authoritarian. I'm not not calling you a right-wing authoritarian. I'm just saying that that's the classic line of right-wing authoritarian discourse of of speech, of what they say, that it was an apology tour. In fact, if you read the speech, and I was very taken with it, it was very radical for a US president to say what he said in Libya um, in 2009 um, or no it was University of Cairo that's what it was and he was basically he used the phrase unclenching the fist and he acknowledged the fact that through imperialism over many decades that many people who are of the Muslim faith have in fact been essentially colonised essentially denied the resources of their state through Western imperialism. Um, And I I thought it was a very radical thing for a US president to say. The other thing in terms of Guantanamo, I think it's a little bit more subtle than um, how it's presented of a black and white. Well, he hasn't shut it down. So it was actually his second day in office. He made an executive order, that particular presidential power, saying that he wanted to shut it down. But he said, I can't shut it down until the individuals in the facility are in fact dealt with. Either they're released or they're prosecuted. And as Ben was saying, there was great resistance to actually processing the individuals that were there. Many individuals who were there had absolutely nothing to do Mm -hmm. with 
terror against the US. Um, there was an issue uh, in that on the ground there were many people who were basically because they went to a particular um, Muslim school um, and there was a bounty like you could actually get rewarded financially if you turned somebody in. It was insane. There was, there was a lot of that. tribes were shopping each other in. They privatised so, the war yeah. on terror. Can I just say that and, and, and Ian made a point that some of the people who have been released went back to fight. Well if anything is going to radicalise you it's going to be yeah. a few years in Guantanamo so just to say, at the outset, there was about 600 people in Guantanamo. Now there's about 78 people. So he has managed to reduce the number of inmates there. And I think I agree with Ben that he has been hampered somewhat in being able to process those individuals. And obviously he feels that they are too much of a threat to um, release. But he did make a lot of progress. Um, but you, let, me, let, me, let, me jump, yeah, yes. let me jump in on this, because I think here's one of the critical components that we talk about his legacy, and that is, what is his negotiating style? Mm. How We can often talk about how, oh, the Republican Congress during his terms, he was hamstrung by them, etc. But what has his, he is, he is considered a loop. He is considered very strategic and deliberate. But yet, is he a real bridge builder? Why didn't he, if he said we have to process them and all of that? He has enough people in his administration on his side or the Democratic Congress members the members of Congress who are on his side, why didn't he act more and fulfill that vision as a leader to make sure there was a way to bring people together to get those people processed, to find an equitable economic recovery, to find ways to get across the Republican often fear and divisive rhetoric. But so I think he's he bears that blame. And Often, why? What is your? I didn't belong to those party lines, and I think it's both sides to blame on that. Uh, and what is your answer to that question? Why didn't he build those bridges? And we were quoting Maureen Dowd earlier, who's a harsh critic of him, you know. But she would say, "Look, we elected a politician who disdains politics." Would you go along with that? I, I would, but I, but I think that the, the, again, it's how you define politics. Where are the relationship building? Where is he? You know, he didn't. To, to think about him as a first-term senator running for president, he didn't. Ha- he didn't know the people. He couldn't have called. He, he hadn't worked for, with them. He was a junior senator running for president, so he didn't have those long relationships, those friendships of knowing the different senators for years and years, and their wives or their husbands or their kids. That can make a difference when you say, "Hey, we need to come together," and here's why. He doesn't have that. I wonder. Though, and we talk about the legacy of Hillary Clinton, if she actually gets it over the line on Tuesday, mm-hmm. because she's known people for so long, will she be able to maybe be more of a bridge builder because she does know people for years and years? I read some fascinating stuff about Hillary when she was first elected to the Senate for New York that there's this big thing in the Senate and in the Congress about prayer groups. Yeah, where, absolutely. Yeah, and she, it's all about which prayer group you join. And she was very careful about the prayer group that she joined that had some of her worst Republican enemies in it. And apparently in these prayer groups, you do your little Bible reading or something in the morning and you don't, <laughs> you don't talk about politics, but it is an opportunity to make connections with people. And she did huge work on winning round, some of her bitterest opponents. See, and this is some of the behind-the-scenes, real-life, inside-the-beltway stuff that you don't hear in the headlines as much. And having worked on Capitol Hill before I got into TV journalism and that sort of thing, 
we all know each other on Capitol Hill. The Republican, the people, when I worked at the DSEC, we not knew everybody at the RNC. We would go drink with them after. It was like clocking in like the, the wolf that guards the sheep and the coyote that goes in and chases the sheep. And after the sun sets, we'd all go have a beer together. You know each other. You go to Christmas parties and things like that that aren't covered in the Washington Post or the New York Times. So it will be very interesting where she does have some relationships. And yeah, the Senate chaplain and the prayer groups and that sort of stuff, that's still part of American politics. So would, is that where you would fault Obama, that he didn't do that? Absolutely. I absolutely think that he was not successful in demonstrating that he was a visionary. Why? Was it the fatigue? Was it the aloofness? Or really was it his true personality that he thought the facts would sway people and not the emotion behind the facts? Mm. Okay, Gina, we let you go. Thanks a million for that, Karen. You just wanted to get in there on that. Really interesting what Gina was saying <laughs> yeah. about the personality, the facts swaying rather than getting into the emotion. Um, if you look at, uh, I, I'm fascinated by Myers Briggs, which is personality type. And if any I've of your listeners, yeah. yeah, if any of your listeners want to find out what their own personality type, they can do it www.humanmetrics.com. But a lot of people were saying that Barack Obama was an INTJ. Um, now, I happen to be an INTJ, so I know that personality type, and he's no INTJ. He was a lot more extrovert. Um, and there was someone who noted that, you know, he started off as a college professor, but he wasn't into the research at all. He was into the teaching, which is the more extrovert side of the job. And I think with Barack Obama is that he, I think he was really energized to make that change. I don't see any a cynical bone in his body with respect to what he set out to do. I think that Gene is absolutely right. This idea that, you know, the human capital and getting to know people, even though you fight across the divide in the houses, um, in Parliament, on Capitol Hill, that you still go for a pint afterwards and you get to know each other and through prayer groups, which is a bit like the GAA in the US. It's how people socialise, certainly in, in, in the South. So I think that she definitely has a point there. But at the same time, the whole point of his campaign is I am an outsider and that's why I'm capable of bringing change to the same degree that Donald Trump is trying to say and would you lay that on, on his doorstep that he's not part of the political class and he's actually capitalising that because that's what people wanted. Uh, but Ben is the moral of the story the outsider cannot bring change. It has to be the insider. I think the insider is, is better placed initially but I think what, what Obama had he had the passion he had the mind but as Gina was saying he lacked the mechanics. Um, and I think the one thing that really frustrated him was with the passion and with all the marshaled arguments, he couldn't convince people who disagreed with him. And I don't think he can understand why people couldn't be convinced by facts. Yeah. That really just peevish about this. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah. and, and yeah. sort of viscerally objected. I have told you in very good terms with all of the facts that marshaled at my disposal and you won't agree with me. Therefore, frankly, I throw my hands in the air and won't um, go away. Apparently, he said to Samantha Power, who was arguing for more intervention in Syria, look, Samantha, I've read your book, okay? You know, you yeah. don't need to keep arguing with it, 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 Again, the world needs a strong America. This is, the, and it doesn't. That's not a sort of a Republican slogan. The world is safer with a strong. But America. does America he, need America to be strong? Maybe if the American well, that's a people for that. have well, actually, said, funny enough, Trump will yeah. be far more isolationist than Hillary will be. 
Mm. You know, um, but the thing about it is whether it's an isolationist or an inter- but the, the, the thing is, the, you know, daft foreign wars don't work, you know, for any, and they're becoming increasingly worse. And we're we're looking into, I reckon, an easy 25 or 30 years of this now of terrorism. Oh. This is not going to go away. You can't blame him entirely for that, but he didn't do much to ameliorate it. Let's put it that way. OK, we will be back. Oh, hang on. I should read some of your texts first. Joan Wexford says one sign Obama would not be a unifiner was the mishandling of a voter intimidation case involving the paramilitary group called the Black Panthers in Philadelphia. In yeah. 2008, it seems voter intimidation of white voters was not taken as seriously as intimidation of black voters. Uh, someone else says Obama's all mouth and no trousers. His hope and change ended up with putting Goldman Sachs henchmen who crashed the economy back in charge of the economy. And for friends I know in Chicago, gone fishing is exactly their thoughts on Obama and they would have voted for him. We're all very harsh. We'll try and say something nice about Obama after these messages. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about Barack Obama and other American politicians this morning. In studio, Ben Conrad, Karen Devine and Tino Doherty. Interesting text here. I'm going to put Karen Devine in a minute. <clears throat> Would Obama's promise to change how politics is done have been better served if he had supported Sanders? Then we'd see the new politics uh, fared against the old politics. Obama had had to engage in much politicking in Chicago. But Ben, first I want to put to you about this um, idea that... Barack Obama had been affected by Bush's disastrous war in Iraq. So when he came in, his foreign policy was don't do stupid stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, which Clinton herself um, criticized. And she said that great nations need organizing principles and don't do stupid stuff is not an organizing principle. Um, I'm going to actually read the rest of the quote because it's so funny. Obama is apparently be, this is from an article by, in the Atlantic magazine by Jeffrey Goldberg called The Obama Doctrine. Great one if anyone's interested. Obama became ripshit angry <clears throat> according to one of his senior advisors. The president did not understand how don't do stupid shit could be considered a controversial slogan. Ben Rhodes recalls that the questions we are asking in the White House where who exactly is in the stupid shit caucus who is pro stupid shit (laughs) but the point being that Bush frightened him off doing anything important internationally would you agree with that assessment Uh, I'm not entirely sure I mean I think Macmillan put that stupid stuff thing slightly more elegantly when he said events dear boy events I mean it, it is that it's the small stuff that trips you up but I think Obama, by nature, is a cautious individual. Um, if you compare and contrast him with Hillary, she's much more adventurous, much more ideological in a sense, much more campaigning. Um, and and I think there's a, there's an interesting dynamic that that Obama's ambitions were limited internationally. It was much more on the rhetorical side than it was on the practical side. And and if Clinton gets in, it's going to be a much more assertive even more aggressive U.S. foreign policy. And of course, if Trump were, were to get in, I mean, he represents the isolationist strand of the, of the, of the Republican Party, which could, be, could have extraordinary implications internationally. Um, so Karen Devine, on that text about whether or not he should have supported Sanders, I'm just going to quote Maureen Dowd again. And she was saying that um, Obama told Rucker's school paper in May that Sanders supporters needed to stop searching for silver bullets and recognise we have to make incremental changes where we can. And every once in a while, you'll get a breakthrough and make the kind of big changes that are necessary. So she says his slogan became, yes, we can, incrementally. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one on Maureen Dow's part. So so should he have support? Right. I agree with the texter. Yes, he should have supported Sanders. However, there's always the context. And I think the context meant that he couldn't. It was a very bitter fight against Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination back in 2008. I think you underestimate the Clintons at your peril. 
I think as someone who's going to go into the office having won, he does not want to. And that's why, you know, you keep your friends close, but you keep your enemies closer. In a way, he put Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State to minimise the damage that would happen to him, I think, in respect of his presidency. So there's a legacy there that he's shrewd enough, I think, to know, and he may not be the plumbossing type, but he does know the power structure that is there on Capitol he, he Hill. He and Michelle have really gotten behind Hillary in the last few weeks, haven't they? Yes, they have. And and again, because that's this, the alternative is Donald Trump. And there was a well, fantastic... There was, there's a fantastic speech by Michelle Obama recently about why you shouldn't vote for Donald Trump and it was very much about you know coming from a feminist perspective of the fact that you know he gloats about sexually assaulting women but if you understand that Sanders um, would have been quite revolutionary but would have been simply feeding into what I mentioned earlier in terms of the polarisation in a way Maureen O'Dowd is correct yes we can incrementally because that's how politics is Ian. Sanders for Sanders was undoubtedly the, the most appealing individual in the run up to all this, but I mean his policies are to the left of Jeremy Corbyn's in many ways, you know, um, and it's just he was simply unelectable, I think, you know. Um, but the one thing, what I would say is that my hideous prediction for a hellish next week, and there was somebody else, uh, actually, it was John Potter that's made the point that basically, you know, November the eighth is just the start. That's just the start. This so, what do you think is going to happen? Um, I think she'll win by a couple of points. I think it'll be close enough for Trump to sue. So she, Hillary to win, Trump to sue, and Hillary then to be indicted and for all of us to spend Christmas cowering under our beds. Uh, ben, uh, and just on the election, um, what about the Senate and the Congress? Is there any chance that Hillary could elect it and actually have a Congress with her, in which case she could actually do something? I think the, the House has slipped over the horizon. She's not going to get the House back. I think the Senate is still in play, but it's not as, as in play as it was a week ago because the tightening of the race is, is giving a bit of a boost to down-ballot candidates on the Republican side. Uh, so uh, if she doesn't get that, as president... Is it just back in the Obama corner again? You can be the best person in the world with good policies and want to do good things. No, I think it's worse than that, and and I'd agree with Ian here. You know, if 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 the Republicans do keep the House and if they keep the Senate, then you are you are potentially looking at the Clinton scandal era on steroids in terms of hearings and impeachments and investigations, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, ongoing. Unless, and this is a this is a big, what we call in the States, a Hail Mary pass. Unless yeah. the Republicans look at this defeat and say, dear God, how did we get here? We have to fix this. Well, we well, have to become a real, regular political party. <laughs> and I don't know if they're going to have that conversation. Yeah. You do, you do really and if get it's the, tight, maybe they won't. Yeah, but you do really get the impression, and you can understand it from a political point of view, why the likes of Paul are on that. I th- there's a sneaking idea that they wouldn't mind Hillary winning having four years to basically wreck America further and destroy the Democrats. <laughs> and then in that time, then that the Republicans can actually come up with a candidate who isn't mad. You know, let's face it, like, basically the bottom line is that a lot of people think that Hillary should be in handcuffs and Trump should be in a straitjacket. Um, Karen Devine, I'm just wondering, though, do we place far too much hope in leaders? We're always looking out for this person who's going to make us feel better about ourselves and make us feel, you know, we can achieve something. And I remember when Tony Blair got elected, you know, there was this real feel something can change and it never really does in the end. What's wrong with us? Why do we need leaders? I don't think there's anything wrong with us. I think that's the system and that there is a leader, there's a position to be filled. But I do think that we need leaders who will give us hope. I think it's one of a a major trait of a good leader. And I think the fact that Hillary would would get elected would give a lot of people hope compared to Trump. Okay, thank you. So Aidan McKelvey researched O'Coffey, produced Orla Ormond was on sound. Thank you for listening. 
Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.